Very good. Well, I want to welcome everybody here to the Bellingham campus. I want to specifically welcome those of you who are joining us in Ferndale. And for those who are watching online as well, welcome. We're so glad that you're here. Hoping you're having a great summer. We've been doing a series called Road Trip. And today I, I want to actually share with you about a road trip that our family took that just went unbelievably wrong. In fact, we still kind of laugh and joke about it. We call it our road trip from hell. It was that bad. This particular Canadian road trip included 3,500 miles, 50 plus hours in the car. At that time, our children were two and four. We spent no more than three days in any one place, and 14 out of the 17 days were spent with relatives. Just let that settle in, and you'll understand the horror of the whole thing. We had at least three major car breakdowns during the trip. And everything that we did, no matter how well we planned it, it just seemed to go unbelievably wrong. It was one of those trips where as we were making the final push for home, you know, my kids are in the back seat saying to me, you know, like, Daddy, I got to go to the bathroom. I'm like, hold it. They're like, but it's been nine hours. I mean, it was that kind of a trip. I just wanted to get home. And, and what's happening right now is actually kind of funny because some of you are rethinking your vacation plans as I'm speaking about this. I mean, we got to the end of the trip, and I was ready to snap. And that's why we're going to talk about this particular message today under this banner. We're going to talk about being at the end of your rope, because that's exactly where I was. We all have breaking points. They come with life. I mean, there's those times in your life when you feel like you've been absolutely stretched to the limit, your patience is gone, your options are exhausted, and you just don't know where to turn. These little breaking points, they, they affect us in everyday life. I mean, it could be while you're standing outside and maybe you've got a brother or sister and they've been in the bathroom way too long and you reach, you know, a breaking point in your life. Sometimes you're just driving down the guide and the same person cuts you off three times in five minutes and you just get to, to the end of your rope. You're ready to snap. Sometimes it's as simple as the fact you can't get your remote to work and it just causes a breaking point in your life. They happen on a daily basis, but... There's some bigger breaking points as well that we all face from time to time. Could have been the death of a loved one, the loss of a job. Maybe a family member decided to reject you and you're not sure why. Or, or maybe you're suffering, suffering through a difficult illness. Those times are unbelievably tough, but they're also moments, if we're open to them, when God can teach us and mold us and, and do incredible things inside of us. You know, conventional wisdom says this, and maybe you want to finish this sentence with me. When you get to the end of your rope, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to make a knot, right, and then hang on for dear life. That, that's what conventional wisdom says. Conventional wisdom says it's just survival time. Hang on. Don't move too much. I mean, you're just going to be okay. The problem with that, of course, is that mindset is that even though you're surviving, your reality is you're just dangling at the end of your rope. And, 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 and you're kind of at the mercy of how long can I hold on in this particular moment? And you're just battling against your own weariness. That's what conventional wisdom says. Get to the end of your rope, make a knot, hang on as best you can. Spiritual wisdom teaches us something different. Spiritual wisdom acknowledges the fact that the world's going to keep handing you ropes all the way through your lifetime. Your job is a rope. Your pursuit of happiness is a rope. Your family's a rope. Your perception of yourself is a rope. Your, your schedule is a rope. And we all know what happens when you try to do too much with too many ropes. 
I mean, eventually you get yourself wrapped in a knot, you trip up. I mean, if you're, not, if you're not careful enough, you get too many ropes going in your life and you can actually hang yourself. That's not good. If you look at all of those things with a spiritual perspective, though, here's a spiritual perspective that goes against the conventional wisdom that says when you get to the end of your rope, just make a knot and hang on. This is what spiritual wisdom will say. It says this, when the world gives you a rope, you need to give that rope to God and then let Him hang on to you. We all reach the end of our rope from time to time. When my daughter McKenna was about three years old, she and I had a conflict of interest. The conflict of interest came over brushing her teeth before she went to bed at night. She thought that because she didn't feel like brushing her teeth, that she could forego that nightly ritual. And so, you know, being her dad and wanting the best for her hygiene, dental hygiene, and also knowing that I paid the dentist bills, I, of course, had another idea. I wanted to convince her she needed to do that on a nightly basis. So I tried to verbally convince her, tried to use my verbal skills to talk her into the fact you need to brush your teeth. It didn't go very well. So I stepped up the pressure, and I gave her a choice between brushing her teeth or a series of consequences that I assured her in her little three-year-old mind. You're not going to enjoy the consequences, so you just need to conform what your dad wants you to do, and you need to brush your teeth. That didn't work either. So if suddenly I find myself in a moment where I'm having an argument, a battle of the wills with a three-year-old child, and she's sparring with me verbally, and we're going back and forth, and pretty soon our voices are raised, our tempers are flaring, roles are being asserted, I'm getting ready to play the I'm your father card, I'm mean, going to lay that out there. We're going back and forth, and suddenly she brought the whole argument to a grinding halt by exclaiming at the top of her lungs, this would not be happening if my grandpa was here. I mean, she just brought it right there, uh, even as a three-year-old. McKenna was at the end of her rope, and she let me know in no uncertain terms that that was exactly where she was located. The Bible is full of people who reach the end of their rope, and the Bible tells us exactly how they responded, because they responded in a variety of ways. King David, when he got to the end of his rope, he prayed. A famous prayer, created me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit in me. That's how David reacted. Isaiah, when he got to the end of his rope, he panicked. I mean, he absolutely panicked. He said, woe is me. I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. That's how he reacted when he got to the end of his rope. Elijah, when he got to the end of his rope, he ran. I mean, he won this historic confrontation. 24 hours later, the so-called man of God is running for his life. Peter, when he got to the end of his rope, the Bible says he wept bitterly. He had an emotional breakdown. Just couldn't handle it anymore. Samson, when he got to the end of his rope, he called for strength. Some of you remember the story. He's chained between these two pillars, and he says, God, just give me my strength back one more time, and I will literally bring the house down. When Jonah got to the end of his rope, he, prou he pouted. I mean, he got angry. He got frustrated with God. When Paul got to the end of his rope, he reflected with these words, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. And finally, we're going to add another guy to our list, a man by the name of Naaman. When Naaman got to the end of his rope, he argued. He argued. Let me tell you Naaman's story this weekend. In the, in the book of 2 Kings chapter 5, we find the story of a man who argued with God, or at least with one of God's representatives. Let me tell you about Naaman. He was the commander in the Syrian army. 
And the Bible tells us that he was a man of great strength and great courage. He had an amazing reputation. Highly regarded, highly respected, but he had a problem. Naaman had leprosy. Leprosy was a horrific and terrible disease. It robbed your body of everything good in an incredibly slow and torturous process. And Naaman was sick. That was the bottom line. Naaman had a servant girl who cared enough about him to tell him. She came to him one day. said, Naaman, there's a man of God by the name of Elisha who might be able to help you. I think he could cure you of your illness. So Naaman does this. He goes to his king, the king of Syria, and he requests permission to go and, and seek out this God-man who might have a cure. Naaman takes a letter from his king, as well as a significant amount of money and goods. He actually thinks, maybe I can buy myself a cure. And he actually goes as a representative of Syria to an Israelite king. I mean, just imagine the response that he got when this commander from a Syrian army goes marching into the throne room of the king of Israel with a letter that basically says, I'm here to get cured of sickness. I mean, you talk about nerve. The Bible's actually kind of funny. The king of Israel says, I, I can't cure people of a disease. I mean, you don't, do you think I'm God? I'm not God. I serve a God, but I'm not God. I can't do anything to help you at all. And the, the, or the Israelite king, he actually gets so freaked out, he thinks the king of Syria is trying to pick a fight with him. I mean, it just goes political in a matter of seconds. Well, Elisha, this man of God, he hears about the situation. And he tells the king of Israel, hey, you send Naaman to me. When Naaman arrives, Elisha sends out a servant. He doesn't even come out himself. He sends out one of his servants with a simple message. Hey, you, go dunk yourself in the Jordan River seven times. It'll take care of everything for you. You know what Naaman's response is? He gets ticked. I mean, he's frustrated. He's angry. 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 11 says this. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought surely he would come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot, and cure me of my leprosy. Are not the Abana and Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than any of the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned off and went off in a rage. Naaman's servant said to him, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, wouldn't you have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? You know, Naaman's in a tough spot. He wants to get well, but he wants to do it on his own terms. Isn't it interesting, his perspective here? I mean, he goes, I just wanted the prophet to come out, kind of snap his fingers, sprinkle some prophet dust over top of me, wave his hand over the spot, and I'm cured. That's what I wanted to happen. And now all of a sudden, he's frustrated because the prophet says, actually, you're going to need to go and dunk yourself in a river seven times. So he starts arguing with God. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever argued with God? Anybody that's like, mm, you're lying, all right? I mean, I have, I've had two kids most of my life, or at least for this last big chunk of it, and I, I've heard some arguing, and, and I think some of their arguments are, are fairly classic. Maybe you've heard these if you've got small kids in your house. Maybe the, the argument that goes, like, no! I mean, you hear it in arguments all the time. How about this one? But it's mine, right? Or how about this one? He hit me! Or I love this last one, classic. I've heard it so many times. You're not the boss of me. 
You know, and we kind of hear those arguments and we laugh to ourselves and we kind of sit and shrug, you know, kids these days, right? And then we read our own Bibles and we have to respond to these arguments ourselves. Hey, Grant, I need you to go and tell your neighbors that Jesus loves them. No! Hey, Grant, I need you to honor me with your finances and just see whether or not I'll keep my promise. Yeah, but it's mine. How about this one? Grant, I need you to forgive the people who've hurt you the most in your life. Yeah, but he hit me. How about this one? Grant, you need to let me have your whole life. All of it. Every single bit. Oh, yeah, God, well, you're not the boss of me. You know? We fall into these little pitfalls all of the time. And Naaman finds himself arguing with God until his servants come and say, I love the fact that they appeal to his ego. Hey, Mr. Commander of the Syrian army, if God had told you to do some great, big, wonderful, and flashy thing, you think you would have done that? But instead, he just told you to go and wash yourself in a river. Is it really that big of a deal? Suddenly, Naaman is humbled, and he heads for the river. Gets in the dirty water. I mean, there's no glory submerging yourself in this dirty river, but he so desperately needs a cure. I'm going to give away the end of the story. He dunks himself seven times, and the Bible says this. His flesh was restored and became like that of a young boy. Naaman walked away with new skin. But more importantly than that, Naaman walked away with a new heart. And in doing so, I believe Naaman lived out four principles that can help us on our journey when we try to move from the end of our rope. Let's talk about these principles together. Principle number one is this. You have to admit you're sick before you're going to pursue a cure. You have to admit you're sick before you're going to pursue a cure. Naaman was an army general. He was used to going up against tough odds, and he was used to winning. He was tough, and any obstacle that got in his way, he would just demolish it and press right through it because that's the kind of man he was. He built his whole reputation on guts and tenacity and leadership. And suddenly one day he hits an opponent that won't move, won't budge. No matter how hard he tries to beat it, this sickness, the leprosy, won't go away. I mean, no amount of human effort could challenge this disease. And at some point, he just had to admit that he was sick. Several years back, I uh, was trying to top a tree in the front of our house on Kwanzaa Drive in Linden. And I actually fell out of the tree. I was thankful I didn't fall on top of the chainsaw, but, but I mean, I fell about six feet. I landed on this part of my shoulder in the back of my head. That's what hit first. And when I hit the ground, I did what any man would do when they fall out of a tree. I bounced up and I said, I'm fine. I'm completely and totally fine. My elbow was swollen to twice its normal size. I was having difficulty breathing, but I was staggered around telling my wife, I'm fine. I'm completely and totally fine. I woke up the next morning. I was not fine. I was not fine. I needed to go and see a doctor. Couldn't move my arm. I couldn't breathe. I mean, I finally had to admit, I need somebody to take care of me because I am broken right now. I'm going to tell you something. Admitting you're broken is hard because we've made an art out of being fine, haven't we? I mean, we tell people. We lie all the time. Hey, how you doing? I'm fine. 
underneath of the surface. Broken relationships, broken families, crushed dreams, hurt feelings. The truth is, we're not fine. And before we're ever going to get to wholeness, we have to admit that we are not fine. Finally, Naaman has to get to a place where he had to say, I'm sick. I'm sick. I can't will this thing away. Which leads us to principle number two. Manufactured cures to spiritual problems are temporary and they rarely produce results. I mean, think about the manufactured cure that Naaman really wanted. He wanted Elisha just to walk out, snap his fingers, wave his hand, and everything was supposed to go away. I mean, I find it interesting that Naaman decided he was actually going to bring money and power in the form of a government document. He thought that would ensure a cure. We see him. He's going to the wrong location. He goes to the wrong person looking for hope. He's trying every avenue, every angle that he can, trying to get this wholeness that he desperately wants. And suddenly, Naaman comes to a realization. He realizes he can't self-help himself out of this particular circumstance. He can't positive think his way around it. He, he can't chant over it. He can't channel his way through it. He can't pretend it's not there. This sickness isn't going anywhere. And Naaman finally gets it right when instead of going to a king and demanding some type of a cure, finally he goes to God. And he has to say, and I'm paraphrasing his thoughts here, I'm done trying to fix this on my own. My strength is gone. I've exhausted every means that I think possible to try and get this sickness to go away, and I can't do it anymore. My strength is gone, so all I have is you, to, who, to which God responds exactly. All you've got is me, and all you need is me. Isn't it amazing how we try to manufacture cures for ourselves? We try to fix all of the different parts of our lives, and we ignore the one person, the one God, who can actually do anything about it. And where do we normally go to Him? We go to Him when we're at the end of our rope. How different would it be if we changed our whole perspective and went to Him first? before we did anything. Principle number three is this. You have to be submer fully submerged to find relief. I mean, I just think in my mind, and I'll ask this question, what do you think Naaman was thinking when he walked into the water? A man of great reputation and respect, and suddenly he's in a dirty river, and he's got to go up and down seven times. I mean, I wonder if it went like this under the first time. This is stupid. Under the second time, I cannot believe I'm doing this. Under the third time, what if this doesn't work? Under the fourth time, everybody's laughing at me. Under the fifth time, I don't know if I can handle this leprosy much more. Under the sixth time, God, I'm scared. Under the seventh time, God, please. Walking through the process, doing the hard work of obedience, 
I mean, let's just be honest. Naaman wanted his healing on his terms. He wanted it his way. He wanted to keep his dignity, his stature, his reputation, and his pride. Don't we all? Don't we all want to keep those things? Even when God asks us to do something crazy, I mean, don't we just want to keep our dignity and our stature? I mean, the instructions seemed crazy, but the reality was he didn't have a lot of choice. I think we learned something here. I think we learned that God only works on his terms because he knows best. Naaman had to learn this tough lesson. He had to exchange his way for his way. I've learned from personal experience that giving it up is not easy, but it's the only way. The real question that we have to deal with when we're in these moments and God has asked us to follow something true through, what we really have to ask is this, do you have a God you can trust? Do you have a God who's big enough to tackle your leprosy, whatever that happens to be? Do you have a God that's big enough to handle those kinds of things? Because if you don't, you're never going to go the full length of obedience. I mean, let me ask you this question. Do you have a God that still walks on water? Do you have a God that can still move stones? Do you have a God that can provide for you even when it looks like there is no provision coming? Naaman finally had to realize, I can't do this on my own. I better appeal to a higher source to take my problem to. Finally, let's look at principle number four. You must fully obey to be fully whole. I mean, do you think he wanted to quit? <laughs> of course he did. Who wouldn't have? Do you think he was tired? Yes. Do you, think he, do you think he thought to himself, I've tried everything else? Absolutely. And here's something we need to understand. Naaman could have stopped at six. He could have stopped at six gotten right up to the edge of what God asked him to do, and instead decided, forget this. This is just absolutely ridiculous. You know what he would have proved at six times? He would have proved that Syrian commanders really do look stupid when they're bobbing up and down in the Jordan River. But he didn't stop at six. Naaman went down for the seventh time. He trusted he sunk, he submerged himself, he swam, he went up and down, he was confused and beat up. But when he came up the seventh time, do you think then it was all worth it? The Bible says that he came up and his skin was completely healed. That he had skin that was literally like that of a young boy. I mean, do you think his testimony after going down for the seventh time would have been, yeah, I'm not sure whether it was worth it or not. Absolutely not. I believe Naaman would have said it was absolutely worth it. Look what God did. God came through for me. I mean, it was tough. It looked foolish, but I did it. And now God has given me the very thing I asked for. Leprosy's gone. Naaman went all the way, and because of his obedience, God gave him the healing that he was asking for. In 1967, a man by the name of Charles Murray was training, or training for the Olympics in diving. Charles had a very, very good friend who uh, had been sharing Christ with him on and off over a long period of time. Charles was very patient with his friend as he would share about Jesus, but, you know, a, a, he just didn't really ever have room for religion in his life. 
Their conversations kind of came to an end one night when, when, when Charles' friend asked him point blank. He said, Charles, do you know Jesus? And Charles' answer was very quick and simple. Nope. I'm not interested. But God wasn't done with Charles. God was continuing to work inside of his life. And later on, years later, Charles said that he talked about how the Holy Spirit just kept on but prodding him with questions about life and his priorities and future. And he jokes about how God would keep him up at night, asking him questions, talking to him about his sin problem. Well, one night to escape his questioning mind, Charles went to the pool to dive. As an Olympic diver, that for him was relaxation. It was very, very late. And, and when he got to the pool that night, he noticed that, that, that the moon was out and absolutely brilliant. The, the pool that he was diving in actually had a glass ceiling, a glass covering over the top of it. And the moon was so bright that night that Charles just thought, I don't even need to turn the lights on. So he climbed the tower and positioned himself for his first dive. Some of you have probably seen how, how divers do this. So he got right out on the edge of the, of the diving platform, and then he stretched out his hands and got ready to put himself into the dive long way above the surface of the water. Charles said that when he got to the edge of the diving board and stretched his hands out, that the moon cast a shadow over top of him down into the pool area underneath and what he saw looked to him just like a picture that his friend had, or had described to him once of how Jesus had stretched his arms out on the cross to purchase the life and the soul of Charles Murray. Up at the top of that diving board, looking down over top of that image, Charles got to the end of his rope. He decided he couldn't fix himself anymore. And in his testimony, he said he fell to his knees, gave his life to Jesus Christ right then and right there. The amazing part of the story is this. After he finished praying, the lights of the pool came on. And Charles looked down over the edge of the tower as a pool attendant came in to check on the empty pool that had been drained of water for repairs the afternoon before Charles went diving. Charles got saved not once. He got saved twice. You know, maybe you're here today and, uh, and you've been arguing with God. Naaman learned that arguing with God was futile. So let me ask the question, what are you arguing about? God wants you to know that he loves those parts of his life, and he would love nothing more for you to come to him looking for a cure and not going to anything or anyone else. Maybe you're here and God's been asking you to do something, but the reality is it's just not quite big or flashy enough for you. I want you to know that God speaks quietly to people, and, and, and while man may not notice what God has asked you to do, God most certainly will notice what he's asked you to do. The question is, will you be fully obedient? You know, maybe you're here and you're just trying to summon up the courage to go down for the seventh time. 
Maybe you're thinking to yourself, do I really want to make one more attempt at getting plugged in? Do, do I really want to pray one more time for that lost family member? Do, do, do I really want to submit my finances to God one more time? I mean, do I really want to tackle that nagging habitual sin that seems to get me over and over again? Do I really want to do this one more time? Remember Naaman. Seven times. Over and over and over again in order to find the wholeness that he desperately wanted. You know, maybe you're here and the reality is you don't know God. What I believe God wants you to know is that He loves you. That He wants the best for you. That He wants you to have fulfillment and joy. But you're going to have to choose. As you make that choice, I'd like you to remember Naaman. Because if Naaman was here right now, I believe he would say this to you. After you're clean... It's all worth it. After you're clean, it's totally and completely worth the journey. Would you pray with me as we close today? God, thank you for an example of a Syrian commander who can teach us so much about life. God, Naaman got to the end of his rope and instead of just tying a knot and surviving, he handed you everything that he had. His leprosy, his questions, his problems, his stature, his, his dignity. And you took all of those things and you held on to him. So God, I pray for those who are struggling today, like Naaman was. I pray for those who are arguing with God trying to figure out what it is that you're doing. I pray, God, instead of just surviving, that they would hand themselves completely and totally to you. God, I pray for those who are in process and are questioning whether or not that they can go on anymore. God, would you help them in this moment to fully obey so that they can be fully whole. God, I pray for those who are in desperate situations. I pray that instead of running from God, that they would run to God. And God, for those who are here today who don't know you as personal Lord and Savior, I pray that they would know that there's a God in heaven who deeply loves them and would love nothing more than to take their sin and wash them as white as snow. God, I pray that they would know the truth of Naaman's story that after you're clean, it's worth it. So God, would you bless and heal, hold and sustain each of us today as we come to that point in our lives when we're at the end of our rope. God, thank you that you meet us there. Thank you for Naaman's story. And thank you for the unbelievable knowledge we have that we have a God who holds us. In Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen.